Chapter 22 of A History of California, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 California and Sonora, the Day of the Filibuster. The annexation of California and New Mexico in 1848 represented only a partial realization of the territorial ambitions of American expansionists. During the negotiation of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, a vigorous party had sought the acquisition of the whole of Mexico, and a somewhat more conservative group had urged the absorption of the states of Coahuila, Chihuahua, Sonora, and Lower California. Footnote. It is highly probable that only the political rivalries and the dispute over slavery in which American politics were then involved prevented the annexation of these four states. End of footnote. The American expansionists did not immediately abandon their ambitions with the ratification of the treaty. Rather, they looked upon the boundary fixed by that agreement as only a temporary stopping place in the southward progress of the United States. Manifest destiny still called for the further extension of American democracy, American institutions, and American rule. Conditions in Mexico after 1848 were also such as to invite interference from the outside. The central government was torn by frequent revolutions, chronically bankrupt, and on the verge of anarchy. So hopeless was the outlook that thoughtful American and European observers generally agreed that some form of foreign intervention could alone prevent the complete disintegration of the nation. Footnote. As an illustration of this attitude, Senator Houston of Texas proposed to the 34th Congress the establishment of a United States protectorate over Mexico. The object of this measure, as he said, quote, was not to increase our dominions, but to improve our neighborhood. End quote. End of footnote. Conditions in the frontier provinces of northern Mexico were especially the object of American concern during these years. Almost abandoned by the federal government, distracted by factional struggles for the control of local offices, harassed and kept in constant dread by Indian forays, the inhabitants of these outlying states were ready for almost any change that promised security and peace. The extension of American control over the sparsely settled and harassed territory across the border was not the most illogical method of solving its many problems. The view of many Americans toward these Mexican border states was clearly set forth in 1848 by an American physician attached to Colonel Donovan's expedition. In his memoir of a tour, Dr. Wislessness wrote, quote, The greatest part of this territory has never been occupied or even explored by the Mexicans, and the thin population in the settled parts of it proves that they never had put any great value on it. The greater inducements which the south of Mexico offered on account of mines, climate, commerce, etc., have concentrated there the seven or eight millions of inhabitants that compose the Mexican nation, allowing but a small portion of them for the northern provinces. One half of this northern territory may, in fact, be a desert and entirely worthless for agriculture. But to a great commercial nation like the United States, with new states springing up on the Pacific, it will nevertheless be valuable for the new connections that it would open with the Pacific, 
for the great mineral resources of the country and for its peculiar adaptation for stock raising. Mexico itself would lose very little by the states composing this territory, as they always have been more of a burden to it than a source of revenue. All the connections which heretofore has existed between Mexico and those states was that the general government taxed them as highly as they would submit to, which was never very great, and dragged them as far as possible into the revolutionary vortex in which the south of Mexico was constantly whirling. But it never afforded them any protection against hostile Indians, never stopped their internal strifes, or never promoted the spread of intellect or industry. In short, it heaped instead of blessing all the curses of the worst kind of government upon them. Policy as well as humanity demands, in my humble opinion, such an extension of the area of freedom for mankind. If deserts and mountain chains are wanted as the best barriers between states, this line affords both these advantages by the Bolson de Mapimi in the east and the extensive Sierra Madre in the west. On the Gulf of California, the important harbor of Wymus would fall above that line. What sort of communication between Wymus and the Rio Grande might be considered the best, a closer exploration of the country must decide. But a railroad would most likely, in the course of years, connect the Rio Grande with the harbor, and give new thoroughfare from the Atlantic to the Pacific for commerce as well as for the emigration to California and Oregon. The distance from Laredo to Wymus in a straight line is about 770 miles. The plan of such a railroad, even if the height of the Sierra Madre in the west would not allow it to be carried in a straight line to the Pacific, but from Chihuahua in a northwestern direction to the Gila, would therefore be less chimerical than the much-talked-of Great Western Railroad from the Mississippi to the Columbia River. And if the above-mentioned country should be attached to the United States, we may in less than ten years see such a project realized. This boundary line would, at the same time, allow an easy defense. Proper military stations at the Rio Grande and near the Gulf of California would secure the terminating points of that line. Some fortifications erected in the mountain passes of the Sierra Madre, where but one main road connects the state of Chihuahua with the south of Mexico, would prevent invasions from that direction, and some smaller forts in the interior would be sufficient to check and control the wild Indians. End quote. Thus, with a certain measure of public opinion in the United States favorable to further expansion at the expense of Mexico, and with the frontier provinces of that country almost defenseless and apparently ready for revolt, it is not to be wondered at that filibustering movements became the order of the day. As might have been expected, the most important of these found their origin in California. Here the disturbed conditions of society furnished a fruitful soil for reckless undertakings of every kind, and men were ready for any enterprise in which lay the promise of profit and excitement. Because of its proximity, unusually rich mineral resources, and rumored antagonism to the central government, Sonora became the natural objective of the California filibusters. It is to be supposed, also, that the leaders of these movements saw a striking likeness in the case of Sonora to the situation presented by California in the early 40s. Both territories were rich in undeveloped natural resources. 
Both suffered from revolution and disturbed political conditions. Both were neglected by the central government. It is true that Sonora always maintained a closer connection with Mexico City than did California, possessed a larger native population, and was less consistently disloyal. On the other hand, her inhabitants had suffered much more severely from Indian attacks and were apparently almost as ready for some form of intervention in 1850 as the Californians were five years before. To conquer this state outright, or to plant American colonies along its frontier, which in time might bring about a movement for independence, consequently became the ambition of more than one adventurous California leader. The first expedition to Sonora were led not by Americans, however, but by Frenchmen. There were many representatives of this nationality in California in the 50s. Some of these had been attracted to the coast by the prospect of the gold fields. Some came to take advantage of the commercial opportunities offered by the new state. Others had been driven over by the upheavals of French politics in the years succeeding the Revolution of 1848. Among this large French element, naturally enough, were adventurers of many sorts. Not finding conditions in California altogether to their liking, a number of the more restless of these turned to Mexico as a field of larger opportunities. The first Sonoran expedition of any importance was composed of about 150 French recruits under the command of the Marquis Charles de Pondre. The latter has been described as a man of noble family, handsome, courageous, gifted with gigantic strength, and very much of a prodigal. As a matter of fact, however, it is doubtful if Pendre's expedition should be classified as a filibustering venture at all. He and his men seemingly had no ambition to stir up a revolt against Mexican sovereignty, but proposed merely to open the rich mining territory in what is now southern Arizona and northern Sonora. In return for certain land and mineral concessions in this frontier area, they were under obligation to establish a number of semi-military colonies to defend the unfortunate inhabitants of Sonora from the devastating attacks of Apache and other Indian tribes. The expedition reached Wymus on December 26, 1851. Here they were greeted with the greatest enthusiasm by the Mexican inhabitants and obtained considerable quantities of supplies and ammunition as well as the promise of financial support from the local authorities. At Arispe, one of the chief cities of the state, Pindre met the governor and other officials who assured him of their heartiest cooperation in his undertaking. The march from Arispe toward the northern frontier, however, was anything but a holiday affair. Privation and danger led to disagreement and of insubordination. At last, Pindre was taken sick in one of the little settlements of northern Sonora, and there either killed himself in a fit of despondency or died at the hands of one of his disgruntled followers. This misfortune ended the expedition. The dispirited survivors either straggled back to the sea coast or found an opportunity to enlist in another expedition, also led by one of their countrymen, which shortly afterward made its appearance in Sonora. This second French enterprise was of much greater magnitude than the Pindre undertaking. The leader of the expedition was an adventurous nobleman, small of stature, decayed in fortune, but full of courage and enthusiasm, known as Count Raousse Bourbon. Whatever may have been Raousse's later intentions, 
This first expedition was apparently organized as a bona fide mining and colonizing scheme. Dillon, the French consul at San Francisco, was one of the original backers of the venture, and largely through his influence, Rousset was led to lay his plans in person before the Mexican government. In Mexico City, Rousset received a cordial reception from President Arista and also obtained the enthusiastic support of Lavoisier, the French minister. Here he organized a company known as La Restauradora and obtained for it a concession for the development of the mineral deposits lying south of the Gila River in what was then the northern Sonora. The important banking house of Jecker and Company agreed to finance the undertaking in return for 50% of the company's grant. Rousset, on his part, engaged to equip an expedition of 150 men, establish a defense against the Indians on the Sonora frontier, and open up the valuable mineral resources which the country was said to possess. President Arista and two leading officials of Sonora, named Aguilar and Cubias, were also to share in the profits of the enterprise. When Rousset returned to San Francisco, he had no difficulty in securing the required number of volunteers for his company, and on June 1, 1852, landed at Wymas with 260 men. Here, however, unforeseen difficulties awaited him. The British house of Baron Forbes and Company were stirring up opposition to the plans of the Compañía Restauradora in order that they themselves might obtain the concessions which Rousset had secured from the Mexican government. The contest which ensued was simply the familiar story of two rival foreign companies in Mexico, each seeking to profit from a coveted concession by promised rewards to Mexican officials. In this struggle for political favoritism, the Restauradora's rivals succeeded in enlisting the support of the military governor of Sonora, General Blanco. Under various pretexts, Blanco succeeded in delaying Rousset's advance to the interior, and when he finally gave permission for the expedition to proceed, it was only that he might still more seriously embarrass it before it reached the Arizona mines. The climax came in August, when the company was encamped on the Altar River in northern Sonora. Here, Rousset received a message from Blanco which compelled him either to defy the governor's authority or to abandon the entire enterprise. In Blanco's communication, the French commander was ordered to choose one of three courses. His men might renounce their French citizenship and sign as Mexican soldiers under Blanco's command. They might obtain proper passports from the city of Mexico, allowing them to enter the Arizona Territory, but conferring upon them no right to denounce mineral properties. Or they might reduce their number to 50 men and under the direction of a Mexican leader proceed to carry out the plans of the Restauradora. Blanco's orders were interpreted by Rousset as an unwarranted cancellation of the terms of the concession he had received direct from the central government. It was a question then whether he should obey a state official and sacrifice all he hoped to acquire for himself and his associates, or rely upon the authority of the federal administration and defy the local governor. The choice was not difficult, especially as Rousset was convinced that Blanco was acting in the interests of his English rivals. Up to this time, the expedition had about it none of the earmarks of a filibustering enterprise, 
but from now on it began to assume the characteristics of such a movement. Rousset's next step was to appeal to the inhabitants of northern Sonora to join him against the Blanco government, receiving some measure of support from the Apache-ridden districts in which he was encamped, he next prepared a flag for an independent state and started to march against Blanco's headquarters at Hermosillo. The attack on this city, garrisoned by some 1,200 men, was made by a beggarly force of 240 Frenchmen. As Rousset's command approached the town, the prefect sent a deputation offering a considerable sum of money if the French would retire without bringing on an engagement. Rousset's answer was slightly melodramatic. Holding his watch in hand, he replied, It is now eight o'clock. In two hours I shall attack the city. At eleven o'clock I shall be master of it. Go tell this to your prefect. Due to Rousset's impetuous leadership and the savage enthusiasm of his followers, half of whom were heroes and half bandits, this pledge was almost literally fulfilled. A short, sharp skirmish drove the defenders out of their positions and gave the city into Rousset's hands. His loss was 17 killed and 23 wounded, against 200 killed and wounded among the Blanco forces. The capture of Hermosillo marked the climax of Rousset's career. Seriously ill and weighted down by the responsibilities of an undertaking which had suddenly changed from a peaceful colonizing enterprise to a victorious military campaign, the French leader was in no position to press forward for the conquest of the state, if indeed at the time he had any actual ambition to carry out such a program. By an agreement with a new governor of Sonora, Gandara, Rousset agreed to evacuate Hermosillo, provided his men might retire unmolested to the seacoast. Once at Guaymas, most of the expedition were glad to return to San Francisco. Thither the leader himself sailed after some months of convalescence at Mazatlan. Rousset, however, by no means abandoned his Sonora ambitions with the dissolution of his first expedition. His countrymen, Dillon and Lavoisier, who had backed him in the Restoradora enterprise, again urged him to go to the city of Mexico and secure the permission of the central government for the establishment of a French colony on the frontier. Santa Anna had succeeded to the presidency and was reported to be much in favor of such an enterprise. Accordingly, Rousset again made his appearance in the Mexican capital, and after some negotiations secured Santa Anna's consent to the establishment of a colony of 500 French citizens in northern Sonora, to better serve as a barrier against the Indian forays. Before the details of the concession could be arranged, however, the Mexican dictator and the volatile Frenchman had a serious falling out, and Rousset returned to San Francisco with a brand of an outlaw fastened upon him. But in no sense discouraged by the hostility of the Mexican government, Rousset set about the organization of the Sonoran expedition. Though at first he met with very poor success, fate at last played directly into his hands. When prospects were most discouraging, the attack of William Walker upon Lower California aroused Santa Ana's apprehensions against the American advance into Sonora, and as the only means of offsetting this danger, the Mexican dictator fell back upon the plan of establishing a French colony on the frontier. To carry out this measure, 
Luis de Valle, the Mexican consul at San Francisco, was instructed by his government to enlist a maximum of 5,000 Frenchmen in California for the Sonora colony. These were to be sent down to Guaymas at public expense and after a year's service would receive a grant of land from the Mexican government. Del Valle carried his instructions to the French consul, Dillon, who in turn enlisted the support of Rousset. As a result of the combined efforts of the three, some 800 Frenchmen were enrolled for the enterprise. The British ship Challenge was chartered to transport the expedition down the coast. But before she could sail, certain United States officials at San Francisco had taken a hand in the game, libeled the challenge, and indicted the Mexican consul for a violation of the neutrality laws. After some legal maneuvering, the challenge, with her passenger list reduced by half, was allowed to depart. Some weeks later, Rausu quietly sailed out of San Francisco with a handful of companions in a schooner of less than ten tons burden. After trying hardships, including shipwreck on the island of Santa Margarita, he at last reached Wymus, only to find that most of his countrymen who had preceded him very lukewarm toward any attack against Mexican authority. Nor did Rousset's attempt to induce Yanez, the Mexican commander, to join with him in a revolt against Santa Ana meet with any better success. With a few of the French contingent more venturesome or less sensible than the rest, Rousset next planned to drive the Mexican forces from the city. But a Quixotic sense of modesty kept him from taking personal command of the attack. Less than 200 Frenchmen engaged in the affray, and most of them were badly demoralized at first fire. Oliver Alsay's bravery and exhortations could not check the rout. The filibusters were scattered, and many of them killed. The remainder took refuge at the French consulate, where they had laid down their arms when the Mexican commander pledged himself to spare their lives. Rousset himself was included in this pledge. A score of times during the engagement he had courted death, and only when his followers fled like frightened sheep had he broken the blade of his sword in disgust and followed the mob to the shelter of the consul's office. Except in the case of Rousset, the Mexican commander kept his promise of immunity to the French prisoners. But due in part to the treachery of the French consul, Calvo, the unfortunate leader was excluded from the general amnesty and received the sentence of death at the hands of a military court. The execution took place at six o'clock on the morning of August 12, 1854. The bravery and composure of Rousset, who secured the special favor of facing his executioners unblindfolded, so unnerved the soldiers who composed the firing squad that their shots failed to reach a vital spot and a second volley was required to complete the execution. With Rousset's death, the French ambitions in Sonora, for a time, came to an end. Soon after Rousset's execution, an expedition, undisguisedly filibustering in its character, was set on foot against Sonora by way of Lower California. This was led by the redoubtable William Walker, in some respects the most inveterate filibuster the United States has yet produced. Walker was born in Nashville, Tennessee, the son of a Scotch banker. He received a very thorough university training and also spent some time in European travel. He later began his professional career as a physician, 
but soon took up the study of the law and afterwards turned to journalism as a more congenial occupation. In 1849, Walker came to California and for some time maintained a connection with the San Francisco Herald. In 1851, he went to Marysville, where he formed a law partnership with Colonel Henry P. Watkins, the nephew of Henry Clay. While thus engaged, Walker and a few companions met at Auburn, California, and talked over a plan similar to that proposed by Rosé Bourbon of establishing a colony on the frontiers of Sonora. One may reasonably conclude, however, that the political features of this enterprise were more attractive to the Marysville lawyer than the prospect of material gain. Two representatives were sent to Wymas to obtain the necessary concession for the establishment of the colony, and perhaps to sound out the Sonora governor regarding a more ambitious plan of independence. But these agents accomplished nothing, first because Rousset had already preempted the field, and second because the San Francisco capitalists who were backing the enterprise withdrew their support on account of changed political conditions in the Mexican capital. Not long after this fruitless mission, Walker resolved to go to Wymas to spy out the land on his own account. At this time, there was little about the future filibuster to mark him as a popular leader. He was a taciturn, reticent man who would often sit for an hour in company without opening his lips. As much as possible, he kept himself apart from men and appeared indifferent to their opinions. Physically, too, he was poorly equipped to appeal to the popular imagination. He was below the average in height and weighed not much over a hundred pounds. A contemporary described him as, quote, a small, red-haired, white-eyed man, freckle-faced, slow of speech, very observant, rather visionary, but possessed of a species of perseverance which is most uncommon. His courage is unquestioned, and although one of the most modest men in his manners, he is as bold as a lion in his measures. On his visit to Wymas, Walker met with a suspicion bordering upon open hostility from the Mexican officials, nor did his appearance greatly commend itself to their admiration. An American named Warren, who was there at the time, thus described his peculiar costume. Quote, his head was surmounted by a huge white fur hat, whose long nap waved with the breeze, which, together with a very ill-made, short-waisted blue coat with gilt buttons and a pair of gray, strapless pantaloons, made up the ensemble of as unprepossessing-looking a person as one would meet in a day's walk. I will leave you to imagine the figure he cut in Wymus, with a thermometer at a hundred degrees when everyone else was arrayed in white. Before the close of Walker's stay at Wymus, there was evidence of a more friendly attitude on the part of the Mexican governor, but Walker refused to meet his advances and returned to San Francisco intent upon another plan of operations. This, in brief, involved an advance against Sonora by way of Lower California. After considerable difficulties with the United States government officials at San Francisco, Walker succeeded in putting to sea in the brig Caroline, having on board some 45 men belonging to the 1st Independence Battalion, as the expedition was bravely called. The Caroline arrived at the harbor of La Paz, where Cortez had established his short-lived colony more than 300 years before, early in November 1853. 
Here, Walker's men effected a landing without opposition. They next proceeded to seize the governor, Espinosa, haul down the Mexican flag, and proclaim the Republic of Lower California. After a brief stay at La Paz, the expedition embarked for a new field of conquest. Before quitting the harbor for good, however, a detachment of Walker's men engaged in a small skirmish with the La Paz citizens, and about the same time he seized another governor who had been sent from Mexico to succeed Espinosa. After a brief stop at Cape San Lucas, the Caroline continued up the coast until she reached the harbor of Ensenada. Here, Walker made his headquarters and proceeded to organize his new government. One of the first steps in this process was to issue the appended declaration justifying his course of action to the American people. Quote, in declaring the Republic of Lower California free, sovereign, and independent, wrote Walker, I deem it proper to give the people of the United States the reasons for the course I have taken. The Mexican government has for a long time failed to perform its duties to the province of Lower California. Cut off as the territory was by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo from all direct communication with the rest of Mexico, the central authorities have maintained little or no interest in the affairs of the California Peninsula. The geographical position of the province is such as to make it entirely separate and distinct in its interests from the other portions of the Mexican Republic. But the moral and social ties which bound it to Mexico have been even weaker and more dissoluble than the physical. Hence, to develop the resources of Lower California and to effect a proper social organization therein, it was necessary to make it independent. On such considerations have I and my companions in arms acted in the course we have pursued, and for the success of our enterprise we put our trust in him who controls the destiny of nations and guides them in the ways of progress and improvement. William Walker, President of the Republic of Lower California. End quote. The government which Walker established consisted of the following officials. William Walker, President. Frederick Emery, Secretary of State, John M. Jernigan, Secretary of War, Howard H. Snow, Secretary of the Navy, and Charles H. Gilman, Captain of the Battalion, and William P. Mann, Captain of the Navy. While Walker was thus occupied in Lower California, his partner Watkins was busy organizing reinforcements in San Francisco. The Briganita was chartered to carry the men down the coast and in order to avoid detention by the authorities, some measure of secrecy was maintained in the preparation. On December 7th, everything was in readiness and the actual work of embarkation began. It was carried out with more than usual dispatch if the following account is to be relied upon. Quote, About halfway down from Front Street, a door was thrown open and as if by magic, drays and carts made their appearance. Files of men sprung out and passed quantities of powder from the shore, besides ammunition of all kinds. A detachment stood guard, the while in utter silence, and the movements were made with such celerity that the observer could scarcely perceive how and where the articles made their appearance. The arrival of the Anita at Ensenada brought Walker both relief and difficulties. The reinforcements were badly needed, for already Walker had engaged in a serious skirmish with the Mexican forces. 
but the anita had scant supplies on board and the problem of securing food was rendered all the more acute by the hundred additional soldiers who must now be fed an attack upon a notorious mexican bandit named menendez enabled walker to secure a considerable number of cattle and the flesh of these with a little corn constituted the sole provisions of the company necessity and choice alike now drove walker to proceed with the real purpose of the expedition namely the invasion of sonora as a preliminary to the actual conquest he proclaimed the establishment of a new government called the republic of sonora lower california and sonora were the states of the new republic and a flag with two stars was unfurled as its emblem walker announced himself the president of the republic and watkins became its vice-president the conquest of sonora however proved much more difficult than the proclamation of the republic discontent and desertion seriously reduced the effectiveness of walker's force the activities of united states officials in california prevented the sending of badly needed reinforcements from that quarter supplies and provisions were almost exhausted and the inhabitants of lower california were becoming increasingly hostile to the american interlopers walker planned to advance against sonora by crossing the peninsula of lower california and then rounding the head of the gulf a more difficult and inhospitable route can scarcely be imagined mountains desert and the broad waters of the colorado all alike offered formidable obstacles to the struggling handful of men who had tempted the march worn out and in rags the company reached the river early in april in seeking to ford the colorado most of the cattle were drowned thus leaving the invading army with almost no source of food even walker though now actually in sonora saw the hopelessness of further conquest half his men deserted and straggled northward to fort yuma the remnant turned back over the weary route they had come and on april seventeenth reached the small town of san vicente where a garrison of twenty-five men had been left at the beginning of the sonora campaign this garrison had been destroyed by the bandit forces of menendez and the latter now began to threaten the reduced company under walker with the same fate the filibusters therefore turned their dispirited steps toward the american border and though constantly menaced by the irregular troops under menendez succeeded in reaching the safety of american soil without having to face a serious engagement the border was crossed may eighth eighteen fifty four at a point close to the modern mexican resort of tijuana walker's army at this time consisted of thirty-three men they were sent north to san francisco where in june their leader was brought to trial for violation of the neutrality laws of the united states after deliberating for eight minutes the jury returned a verdict of not guilty so far as mexican territory was concerned this ended walker's career as a filibuster for a time he resumed his profession of journalism and also played an active part in california politics as a member of the broderick wing of the democratic party footnote this was the anti-slavery wing of that party the old-time view that the filibustering expeditions against Mexican territory were for the purpose of extending slavery is untenable. In footnote. A year later, however, his dreams of empire again drove him to re-enter the dangerous calling in which he had served his apprenticeship in Lower California. 
On May 4, 1855, Walker once more sailed out of the Golden Gate, bent on great deeds and high emprise. His goal was a troubled Republic of Nicaragua. Here he was destined to meet with a full tale of adventure, experience, countless vicissitudes of fortune, and eventually realized to some extent the restless ambitions to which he had surrendered his career. Success, however, was only fleeting. On the morning of September 12, 1860, William Walker, freebooter, pirate, soldier of fortune, and international outlaw, as he was variously called, was led out of the little Honduran town of Trujillo as a prisoner. Just beyond the town, in an angle of an abandoned fort, erect and unafraid, he was shot to death by a firing squad. Perhaps this was the fate Walker deserved, but wonders what his judgment history would have passed upon him if his dreams had become realities, even as one wonders what place Sam Houston would hold today if the Texas Revolution had been a failure. Following Walker's fiasco in Lower California, one other Californian sought to carry through the familiar plan of establishing an American colony in Sonora. The leader in the enterprise was Henry A. Crabb, one of Walker's former schoolmates in Nashville who had come to the coast in 1849. Crabb soon won for himself a respected name in Northern California and was elected to a number of important political positions. Through his marriage into a Spanish family, which had formerly owned large holdings in Sonora, Crabb became interested in the political and economic future of that harassed state. Footnote. Crabb's wife was a member of the Ainsa family, claiming descent from Juan Batista de Anza, a pioneer explorer from Sonora to California. In footnote. In 1856, he organized a colonizing company and took some 50 persons from California into Sonora over the Los Angeles-Yuma Trail. On this visit, Crabb came in contact with Ignacio Pesquiera, the leader of one of the two rival political factions in the state. At that time, Pesquiera was involved in a revolution against the local government, headed by Gandara, and sought to enlist Crabb's aid in the effort to unseat his rival. Crabb was apparently won over by Pesquiera's representations, including a promise to seek Sonora's annexation to the United States, and returned to California with the idea of gathering together an expedition to carry out the undertaking. Early in 1857, he organized the Arizona Colonization Company and enlisted nearly a hundred men in the enterprise. Many of these were gold seekers from the mines in Tuolumne County, and others were recruited in San Francisco. At least half a dozen were men of marked political prominence in the state. The expedition reached San Pedro on January 24th. They then marched overland to El Monte, where provisions, wagons, and horses were secured, and a few additional recruits enlisted from among the reckless Texas settlers who had made up the little community. Leaving El Monte, the company proceeded by way of San Gorgonio Pass and the Coachella Valleys to Fort Yuma. Here the company remained until March. Crabb then led his men, by this time a fairly well-disciplined force, into the little Sonoran town of Sonoita. Here he learned with some surprise that the Mexican officials were preparing to resist his advance and that his colonizing enterprise was sure to be attended with some difficulty. The explanation of this unexpected Mexican hostility 
lay in Pesquiera's change in attitude. After Crabbe's return to California from his first visit to Sonora, Pesquiera and Gandara had reconciled their differences and divided the spoils of office between them. Pesquiera, consequently, had no longer any use for Crabbe's services, and feared lest his former relations with the American might prove a serious embarrassment if they became known. He therefore bent all his energies toward defeating the plans of the expedition and destroying those who composed it. Crabbe, perhaps ignorant of Pesquiera's change of heart, or else regarding his expedition as a legitimate colonizing enterprise based on an established Mexican law, had difficulty in understanding the critical danger in which he and his men were now involved. Leaving Sonoita, the expedition began its march from the border, but near the town of Caborca they were fired upon by a party of Mexican troops lying in ambush. In a short time, the entire company was fighting for its life in the narrow streets and adobe houses of the little pueblo. After several of his men had been killed and others severely wounded, Crab sought terms of surrender. The Mexican commander, Gabilondo, promised the Americans a fair trial and agreed to furnish proper medical attention for their wounded. Crab unwisely accepted these terms. His men, one by one, crossed the street from the American position to a church occupied by the Mexican forces. No sooner had they laid down their arms than they were securely bound and taken to the Mexican barracks. The surrender occurred about 11 o'clock on the night of April 6th. The next morning, the Americans were taken out in squads of five and ten and mercilessly executed under Gabalando's orders and at the instigation of Pesquiera. The details of the massacre are too barbarous to be repeated. For heartless cruelty, the incident is unsurpassed, even by the slaughter of the French at St. Augustine or the butchery of the Texans at Goliad. The bodies of the Americans were left unburied and subject to the most shameful and revolting treatment. Footnote. Only one of the party, a boy 14 years of age named Charles Evans, escaped. Other Americans, two of whom at least were on American soil, were seized and killed by Mexican troops after the Caborca massacre. In footnote. Crabb himself faced death as a gentleman should, as calmly and quietly as though he were going to a pleasant home. The Mexican commander had reserved for him a special form of execution. He was tied to a post with his hands raised above his head and his back to the Mexican troops. In this position, his body was riddled with nearly a hundred balls. His head was then cut off and preserved in mezcal as a trophy of the occasion. Certain American historians have shown a peculiar tendency to applaud the massacre of American citizens at Caborca as a justifiable outburst of Mexican patriotism. Such an attitude is difficult to account for. Crabb and his men were not executed by patriots, driven to a terrible act of vengeance by a violation of their country's rights. The true explanation of the tragedy lies in Pesquiera's antagonism to the Ainsa family, with which Crabb was allied, and in his desire to restore his tarnished reputation and destroy those whose testimony might convict him of traitorous dealings. John Forsythe, American minister to Mexico at the time of the massacre, correctly summed up the motives of the massacre as follows. Quote, 
I think there is little reason to doubt that Mr. Crabbe was invited to Sonora, and that he was the victim of deception, treachery, and surprise. The sequel of history, I fear, will prove that the extermination of himself and his party was designed to cover up the complicity and treason of some of the Mexican public men of Sonora. This is only surmise on my part, colored, however, by some dark hints that have come to me to that effect. It is not easy upon a different hypothesis to account for the conduct of Crabbe. He was a man of sense and energy and cannot be supposed to have gone with his eyes open into the snare that was set for him. He must have been betrayed. Elsewhere, Forsyth, who was decidedly hostile to Crabbe's expedition, made this interesting comment. Quote, the expeditionists have certainly chosen an unfortunate time for their movements as regards the interests of the United States in their relations with Mexico. The invasion is calculated to produce an unhappy influence adverse to the efforts which I have constantly and perseveringly made to eradicate from the Mexican mind the deeply seated distrust of Americans and to establish in its stead a confidence in the friendly and honorable sentiments of our government and people toward them. My observation has taught me to believe that nothing but this distrust and fear of our people has prevented the states bordering the United States, especially those like Chihuahua and Sonora, overrun by savages and receiving no protection from the Mexican government, from breaking their feeble ties with the central government and seeking an annexation with us, that security for life and property of which they are now wholly destitute. The people of Mexico have been taught to believe, from the examples cited to them in California and Texas, that their property titles, especially the land, would not be respected by their new rulers. I have the opinion of the most intelligent man I meet here that this circumstance alone has saved to the Republic of Mexico the fidelity of Tamaulipas, New León, Chihuahua, and Sonora. End quote. Crabbe's death marked the end of expeditions from California into Mexican territory. The coming of a more settled state of society and the outbreak of the Civil War brought this particular phase of the state's history to a close. Sonora, the land of romance, the land of tragedy, the dreamland of the filibuster, was destined to retain her Mexican statehood, instead of adding another name to the long list of those Mexican provinces which the United States acquired in the days when manifest destiny was something more than a popular phrase. End of chapter 22